Section 12 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 32 Alexander Pope. The name of Alexander Pope is inseparably associated with the reign of Queen Anne, although most of the works which made him especially influential and popular in the society and the literature of his time were not published until after Queen Anne's reign had come to a close. His fame, however, had been quite assured, and his position as a poet had been won for him by such poems as The Rape of the Lock, The Messiah, Windsor Forest, and The Ode to St. Cecilia's Day. Pope was born in London in the year of the revolution which dethroned the Stuart kings and made William of Orange ruler of England. He was of lower middle-class parentage, but was fond to believe that his father could boast of high descent. His father was in business as a linen draper, some say a hatter, in the Strand, and the young Alexander Pope does not seem to have had anything like a finished education according to the standard of that day or of ours. His poetic gift showed itself in very precocious verse, according to his own account. While yet a child, he lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. Some of his earliest poems have a peculiar gravity and stillness about them little resembling the strains of exuberance and emotion generally given to the world by the earliest efforts of inspired youth. Pope had the good fortune, in one sense at least, to attract the attention of Wycherley by some of his youthful poems, and Wycherley became his literary patron and introduced him to the Society of London Men of Letters. Pope had much of the temperament which satire and comic literature have in almost all ages associated with the character of the precocious poet. Many of his personal qualities would have needed but little satirical exaggeration in order to construct an effective and lifelike caricature of egotistical and dissatisfied poetical aspiration. Pope was always in weakly health with a feeble and deformed frame. His lack of physical strength and his bodily ailments had done much to make him morbidly sensitive. He was quick of temper, changeful of mood, impatient of restraint or contradiction, ever craving for sympathy and too often finding the sympathy, even when sincere, wholly unsatisfying. With such a temperament, he was naturally too ready to get into quarrels with his friends and could easily be brought into the mood which made him apt to believe that his friends of yesterday had become his enemies today. He quarreled with men and he quarreled with women, and some of his quarrels have become famous episodes in the history of literature. Yet his life was, on the whole, one of remarkable prosperity, and he was drawn into close association with some of the most famous men and women of his time. In those days, the workers in literature were brought into intercourse with the leaders of political and social life, more than was usual in most of the former and most of the later periods of English history. We do not find Tennyson and Browning, Dickens and Thackeray, 
brought into close companionship and actual cooperation with the great statesmen and political leaders who conducted or disputed the rulership of the country during the reign of Queen Victoria. But Alexander Pope and other literary men as well were in constant comradeship with such political and parliamentary leaders as Bolingbroke and Harley, and the author of a great poem or romance not infrequently interrupted or varied his career during Queen Anne's reign by becoming a great political pamphleteer. A man like Bolingbroke claimed to be an author and a thinker as well as a director of state policy. A man like Harley loved to be regarded as a patron of literature, an authority on art, and the chosen friend of artists and authors. Pope, therefore, lived at a time and came into a social life especially favorable to the encouragement and development of rising poetic genius, and he can have known but little of the hard and bitter struggles which other men, not inferior in natural gifts, have had to go through in their efforts to climb that steep where fame's proud temple shines afar, as another poet has described the attempt. Few poets have ever been more successful than Pope in acquiring what may be fairly called a wide and lasting popularity. Genius of the highest order he certainly did not possess, and some of his most influential critics have not hesitated to assert that he never possessed the true gift of genius at all. It is not easy to maintain any profitable disputation as to the precise descriptive power, the exact, and if it may thus be phrased, the scientific meaning of words which are employed in the effort to establish certain distinct grades and orders of intellectual capacity. Whether the combination of mental and lyrical gifts with which Pope was undoubtedly endowed did or did not amount to actual poetic genius would perhaps be a futile subject of discussion. So uncertain are the standards by which we can pretend to test the existence of that undefined element we call genius. That Pope possessed anything like the highest order of creative genius that he belongs to the highest rank of poets, nobody in our time would think of asserting, and indeed the tendency for several past generations has been rather to disparage Pope than to overstate his gifts of poetry. But it will probably be admitted by all that he created a new poetic form, and that in some of his poems at least we come on passages and thoughts, on imaginings and fancyings, which appear to be entirely original, and can hardly be set down as indicating the possession of anything less than the gift of that genuine poetic fire which we regard as the light of genius. There is, for instance, an exquisite imaginative and creative faculty in The Rape of the Lock, which could hardly be the work of the most felicitous imitation, even supposing that it bore any evidence of imitation at all. There are passages in the Messiah over which the most casual and careless reader, even though he may have learned from modern criticism to think little of Pope, may be compelled to linger in deep and delightful thought, and in which he recognizes the thrill of that touch associated with poetical genius. 
the very fact that both these poems are professedly founded on literary models is in itself but another proof of Pope's poetic originality. The Messiah was given forth as an imitation of Virgil's eclogue, Polio, and the most delightful passages in The Rape of the Lock were suggested by a once famous fantasy which had to do with the sprites and other aerial beings sacred to Rosicrucian mysteries. But in both instances Pope only took from his model the mere suggestion for his poem and treated it entirely and absolutely after his own fashion and according to his own fancy. In order to make a work of art truly original, it is not necessary that the first idea of it shall have come up in the mind of the poet who undertakes to give it a new form. The greatest critics of the ancient and modern world have laid it down as a law that the originality of a work of art consists in the treatment of the materials and not in the mere conception of the idea the artist intends to work out. Lessing has declared that no matter how often a certain subject has been used before, the latest poet who deals with it is entitled to be regarded as the creator of an original poem if he treats his subject in his own way and has the gift of modeling it into a work of art. Goethe has contended that Troilus and Cressida may be regarded as one of Shakespeare's most original plays because although Shakespeare found his story and its principal characters in Homer, he treated story and characters entirely according to the guidance of his own inspiration. Indeed, if this artistic doctrine, which at first may seem somewhat paradoxical, were not strictly true, some of the noblest works of art produced by the literature of all times would have to be set down as wanting in originality. Virgil's great epic would have to be described as a mere imitation of Homer. Shakespeare's finest dramas as mere borrowings from history or legend, and Goethe's Faust as the tenth transmitter of a well-known and popular story. The sprites and sylphs and gnomes of the rape of the lock become entirely original creations as the fancy of Pope has made them live and move before us. It is not, therefore, because of any want of originality that Pope must be refused a place among the greatest English poets, but because his imagination, his intellect, and his constructive genius did not enable him to create out of any materials such works of art as those which Shakespeare and Dante and Goethe have given to the world. Nothing can be more perfect in its way than the smooth and measured melody of Pope's verse. One is sometimes surprised to find that the English language, which is not in itself essentially musical in sound, can have been wrought into lines of such harmonious cadence as those which come before us almost everywhere in Pope's finer poems. The truth has to be admitted that Pope, whether consciously or unconsciously, relied too much on measure of rhythm and melody of sound, and the most sympathetic reader grows a little weary now and then of the smooth and regulated cadence which falls upon his ear as every line is read aloud. Pope had an exquisite gift of phrasing, and we have had occasion to remark before in this history that many of his phrases and his lines have become part of the familiar stock of conversation and are repeated again and again in our own time by many who have forgotten or who never knew the source from which the phrases or the passages have come. 
Pope's popularity, which was probably unequaled among English-speaking peoples in his own day, and has perhaps been fading ever since, may be made intelligible even to the younger readers of the present generation when their attention is called to the fact that so much of him still lives with us and comes so often almost unbidden to our lips. Bentley said with justice of Pope's translation of the Iliad that it was a fine poem, but that it was not Homer. Pope's version of the Iliad is indeed in all but the story and the personages curiously unlike the Iliad of Homer. The style of Pope's rendering is too ornate, too elaborate, too verbose, to have any affinity with the simple, strong, inspired style of Homer. But it has to be said for Pope's rendering of the Iliad that he brought home the story of Troy's fall to millions of readers from that time to this who might otherwise have never known the whole story of the marvelous epic. There have been greater English translations of Homer than Pope's, but there was never any other English translation which exercised such a charm over what may be called the average or the popular intelligence as was wrought by Pope's captivating version. In every generation since Pope's time, thousands of schoolboys in these countries have learned in the first instance to appreciate the wondrous tale of Troy Divine from Pope's translation of the Iliad. Something more even than this may be said. A large proportion of young men have in every succeeding generation been drawn to a study of Homer in his own tongue by the charm of Pope's translation. Many a middle-aged and scholarly man who has learned to appreciate Homer in Homer's own language has frankly owned in his maturer years that it was from Pope's Iliad he first acquired that love of the epic story which could not be satisfied with anything short of a direct acquaintance with the original. To have accomplished such a success as this would be enough to entitle its author to the gratitude of the world and to a noble place among the world's poetic benefactors. Pope's translation of the Iliad does not belong to the literary triumphs which adorned the reign of Queen Anne, for it was not published until after Queen Anne's death, and it is only mentioned here as one of the evidences which go to prove the title to immortality awaiting the author of The Messiah and the Rape of the Lock. Perhaps it is not exaggeration to say that if these two poems were the only productions of their author, they would of themselves secure for Queen Anne's reign a renown in poetic literature. Too much of Pope's life and genius was wasted on futile and deplorable quarrels and on the infuriate satire in which his anger could not be kept from expressing itself. Some of Pope's satirical pieces are amongst the finest things he ever did, so far as eloquence and impassioned poetic vituperation and exquisite melody of sound can make a poem fine. And it is hard when we read one of these masterly satires not to lose for the time, in our enjoyment of the thoughts, the images, and the words, our just sense of regret that such a master of English verse should have wasted his best powers on ignoble personal controversy. The closing lines of the Dunciad, another of Pope's poems which did not make its appearance until years after Queen Anne's death, have been described by critics of great authority as displaying Pope's imaginative faculty at its very highest reach. 
the lines which picture the darksome fate to come over the world in punishment for its worship of false poetic gods, the time of doom when art after art goes out and all is night, the time when universal darkness covers the whole world of thought and intellect, show beyond question a power of poetic imagination which we rarely find in those works of the author that are devoted to higher and more noble themes than personal satire. Pope was only too ready to find offense where no offense was intended, and no warmth of previous friendship could prevent the sudden chill which sometimes came over him when he fancied some friend had done him wrong. As we have already mentioned in this volume, The Messiah was originally published in an earlier number of The Spectator, and at that time Pope was one of Addison's most devoted friends. When afterwards a quarrel sprang up between them, or when Pope believed he had reason to quarrel with Addison, he assailed Addison in satirical verses all the more bitter and wounding because they professed to come from one who for the sake of old friendship would gladly have refrained from uttering a word of condemnation, if only the condemnation could be suppressed without injustice to the cause of truth. Pope's quarrel with Lady Mary Wortley Montague is one of the standing comicalities of literary history. It must be owned that the poet does not show to much advantage in the stinging verses with which he assailed the lady, and the contrast which he suggests between her diamonds and her dirty smock seems to belong to the order of dispute which might have been popular in the region described by Hogarth as Gin Lane. The fame of Lady Mary Wortley Montague survived, however, even the satire of Pope. She was a woman of remarkable and original intellect. She had a rare gift as a letter writer. She wrote letters which have taken an abiding place in literature, and the world owes much to her courage as the promoter of a great and successful experiment, the practice of inoculation. It was believed at one time that Pope had been treated with sudden and merciless contempt by Lady Mary when the friendship which she always showed him had been misunderstood by him and he offered himself to her as a lover. The story went that Lady Mary had been cruel enough to heap insulting ridicule upon him because of his personal deformity and without any excuse for such an outburst of scorn. There does not seem any reason to believe that Lady Mary had acted with such unprovoked and merciless cruelty. But it is certain that she did in some way wound the feelings of the oversensitive poet, and Pope thought no satirical language could be too strong or too coarse in which to express his resentment. The quarrel and the manner in which Pope conducted his part in it, in his attempt afterwards to explain his words away, did more harm in the end to the man than to the woman. Lady Mary's claims to the esteem and admiration of the world are not much affected by any satirical imputations as to the condition of her underlinen. While every true admirer of Pope must regret that such a poet should have demeaned himself by so ignominious a display of enmity in such a quarrel. When we are considering and endeavoring to study the development of Pope's poetical genius, we must, of course, take full account of the conditions under which its development had to work its way. 
we must consider the general character of that public to which he had to address himself. A great original poet, a poet of the highest order, follows no doubt the inspiration of his own genius and does not think of shaping his verse so that it may find a ready acceptance from any particular audience. The minstrel in Goethe's poem declares that he sings but as the songbird sings, without any thought of public favor or personal reward. It has also been said that oratory is heard, but that poetry is overheard. This latter distinction seems to be scarcely accurate, for it is not possible to think of the poetry of Homer as something merely overheard by an audience, of whose existence the poet is unconscious and to whose attention he is indifferent. Even the declaration of the minstrel and Goethe's poem could hardly apply to any but poets endowed with thoroughly original inspiration, whose only guiding impulse is the genius that compels them to pour forth their thoughts. Pope, at his very best, was not endowed with this gift of absolute originality. There was in him a natural tendency to imitation. Some poetic form had an especial charm for him at one moment or another, and his poetic faculty shaped itself accordingly for the time, although the method by which he made use of his own materials secured for his work according to Lessing's principle a just title to originality. The form of Dryden had at first a great attraction for him, and it is only as he became bolder and stronger that he came to obey more freely the impulse of his own inspiration. There are passages in Dryden which show a boldness of imagination and a vigor of expression never equaled by Pope. But then it must be owned that the finest verses ever produced by Pope are those which show least evidence of the early influence exercised on him by Dryden. The influence which seems to have had most to do with the molding of Pope's verse was the influence of that social life to which his verse was chiefly addressed. There was in Pope's time no such reading public in existence as that to which the authors of our own day may hope to appeal. During the reign of Queen Anne and for long after her reign had come to an end, there was really no reading public according to the meaning which we now attach to the words. The great majority of the people in these countries during that time may be described as men and women who never read books at all. The poorer classes generally had not learned to read, for there was no system of national education going on, and the voluntary efforts made by churches and charitable institutions and beneficent individuals for the instruction of the people could not accomplish much in the way of enlightenment to the common mass of ignorance. Only in the large cities and towns could a writer expect to have many readers, and even in the cities and towns, his readers were limited to a comparatively small section of society. The audience to which a book had to appeal in London was confined almost altogether to those belonging to what were called the higher classes and to those orders of society which looked up to the higher classes for guidance and illumination as to the books they ought to read. The various clubs in London which were frequented by men of rank or by men of intellect, by poets and essayists, by wits and politicians, constituted the audience on whose favorable reception the young author had in the first instance to depend. 
if such an audience were to appreciate and welcome his early efforts to pronounce its judgment decisively in his favor and declare him entitled to a place in literature then our young author's fame might spread so far as to procure for him a certain proportion of readers outside the privileged circle of society in the clubs but in no case was it possible for a mere poet to find such a public for his works as he might have found if he deserved it in days nearer to our own nothing was more common during the reign of queen anne and long after than the publication of a book by subscription as it was called a young poet appealed to some of his influential friends on behalf of a new volume which he was eager to publish and the influential friends agreed among themselves and obtained the agreement of others to subscribe toward the expense of printing and publishing the volume at so much per copy thus the author and the printer were secured in the first instance against loss on the venture and thus and thus only in many cases was there any chance of a book ever coming before the public pope himself when he was preparing his translation of the iliad issued an appeal to his friends and the public in general for a list of subscriptions which might enable him to encounter the risk of presenting his translation in printed form to the world it must be said that pope like many other literary men of his time got some of his work done for him on the plan which may be described as the farming out system when he had shaped a literary project of considerable magnitude he sometimes entrusted the construction of certain portions of it to the hands of men whose skill and capacity might be safely employed for the work and he gave to the whole composition the benefit of his name all the more important passages if we can fairly make such a distinction when speaking of a literary production were no doubt his own and in the case of pope's translations we may fairly assume that all the finer passages were his but it was not then thought beneath the dignity of a poet or an author of any kind to accept frankly and without concealment the help of a literary cooperation which was nevertheless not formally acknowledged a cooperation which if accepted without formal acknowledgment in our days would be kept a secret even from the most intimate friends of the author whose name appeared upon the title page when pope was engaged in the translation of the iliad it must be owned that some manner of cooperation was decidedly necessary for the accomplishment of his task pope was not a scholar even in the sense which the word bore during the reign of queen anne it would hardly be true to say of him as ben jonson said of shakespeare that he knew little latin and less greek but he certainly had not a scholar's acquaintance with the language of homer and he must have helped himself sometimes as a modern schoolboy might do with his latin translation to supply his deficiencies in greek it was therefore only natural and reasonable that he should avail himself now and then of the assistance which could be given to him in his work by englishmen possessed of more scholarship than he could pretend to whatever help pope may have had in this way it may be taken for granted that the construction the arrangement and the final polishing up of the whole rendering were kept in his own hands pope may be said to have popularized that peculiar form known as english heroic verse 
which we find in his translations and in so many of his original poems. It is exquisitely smooth, well-balanced, and melodious. It often delights and never offends the ear. But it must be owned that the verse sometimes becomes monotonous when it is not broken by vivid descriptions of action or by animated dialogue. Pope appealed to a circle of readers with whom form and phrase ranked higher than nobler and more poetic qualities. A public chiefly composed of authors, wits, and scholars who take it on themselves to give literary laws to the contemporary world is very apt to fall into ways and dogmas and fashions of its own and to accept the ordinances of its own school as eternal laws of criticism. Every literary or artistic school or clique established at any time is apt to degenerate into such a mental condition and to regard mere imitation of the mannerisms which belong to the recognized masters as the best evidence of high artistic culture. This was especially to be observed at the time when Pope was becoming famous among English poets, and it led him, when once he had found his way into the charmed circle, to believe that his whole mission was accomplished when he had obtained its approval and applause. A poet of the highest creative order would never have allowed himself to be fastened down by the rules of a school. But then Pope was not a poet of the highest creative order, and he naturally believed that the supreme seal of approval had been set upon his work when it won for itself the hallmark of the order to which he presented it. Queen Anne's days will rank with the highest epoch of English literature so far as prose writing is concerned, but it can claim no such exalted place in poetic composition, and Pope's poetry may be regarded as illustrating very effectively some of its finest qualities and most of its prevailing defects. There are passages in his best original poems which seem to fill the reader with the sudden hope that the poet is about to break through all conventional rules and to strike a bold original note which shall soar into the most exalted poetic atmosphere. But the reader or the listener is doomed to disappointment, and according to his mood of mind is either inclined to turn away from Pope altogether, because Pope has not fully satisfied his yearnings, or returns to him with renewed admiration and love, because he has gone so near to the full accomplishment of the heart's desire. It has often been observed that many readers, even in our own days, have found themselves compelled, sometimes against their own will, to belong to this latter order. They have felt, and frankly acknowledged to themselves, a certain disappointment with Pope's best efforts, and yet have returned to him, found that his work could never lose its charm for them, and that they could not open a volume of Pope without being compelled to linger lovingly over its pages. In our own time, Pope commands a far larger number of readers than Dryden, even among readers who can clearly see for themselves, and are quite willing to admit, that Dryden had a quality of genuine originality which never belonged to Pope, and that Dryden reached poetic heights to which Pope does not seem even to have aspired. Pope has been on the whole one of the most liberally rewarded of men both by the applause of his own time and by the praise of the generations which came after him. In our own times, the number of Pope's readers is but small when compared with the numbers of those who are familiar with the poets of the 19th century. But even in our own times, it is doubtful whether any poet, 
whose period of production came between the Elizabethan age and the time of Byron, Wordsworth, and Shelley, has so large a number of readers as Pope can yet command. Those who still read him may be said to feel something like a real affection for many of his poems. When they open a volume of Pope, they are drawn to read on and on, and they put him down with a distinct sensation of reluctance. Many passages in his poems are like dear old friends, or like the loved notes of once familiar music, which can never fail to touch the ear. This is the more surprising because of the artificiality which shows itself so much in Pope's mode of construction, and even in the very melody of his verse. But it is none the less true. Despite all the irritability, the quarrelsomeness, the jealousies which were part of the poor deformed poet's nature, there must have been in him a sincere and loving heart, or he could not have maintained such a hold on the affectionate interest of so many generations of readers. The world is accustomed to think of Pope in association with the shore of that beautiful stream, besides whose translucent wave he lived so long, in that home which still preserves his name and is made famous by his memory. Perhaps the character of Pope's poetry may be compared, not unfairly, with that of the river which he loved so well. The poetic stream of his verse was not a Rhine flowing between ranges of hills and beneath antique and legend-haunted castles. It was not that Italian river with the wild wave and headlong speed which Byron celebrated. It was not a Mississippi making its way through a vast continent, from the winter snow of the north to the semi-tropical regions of the south. It was like the Thames as it flowed past Pope's home, beautiful, tranquil, musical, not driven by tempest, not calling up images of passion and destruction, but holding always the love of those who from the first are able to appreciate its charm. End of section 12